0: Last week, we started to look at the Passover Seder that Jesus and his disciples participated in. If you've never gone to a Passover Seder, then sometimes it's a little harder to understand what's going on. So the best way that I can kind of describe it to you, if you've never gone to one, it's kind of like a Thanksgiving meal at a Family members home with an order of service. Um, families tend to, in Thanksgiving, do various things or not at all. You know, sometimes, like in our family, we'll gather around either before or after meal and say what we're thankful for. And make everyone say at least one thing, um, and then we eat. But there is a sense of it's a family meal, and things are happening, and people are talking, and some people are talking in this group and other people are talking in that group. And sometimes somebody has the attention of the entire table and, and we do that. So it's, it's kind of like that, except there's an order of service. They call it a Haggadah. And um, Saul, who later became Paul, his uh, rabbi was Gamaliel, And uh, he said that there were three essential elements to a Passover Seder the lamb, the unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. And if you don't have those, then you don't have a technical Passover Seder. But then that is what's called the symbolic meal. And then there is the supper that people eat and enjoy. And so we're going to kind of see that in this flow of things. And so I'll try to explain that system. And we've already seen that Jesus has somewhat modified the Haggadah, if you will, because initially they start off with a ceremonial cleansing of the hands. And Jesus, instead of ceremonial cleans- cleansing the hands, he, in a servant's position, washes his disciples' feet. And so the meal is going to continue on. And we have this idea that somehow it's this holy reverend thing. No, it's a family gathering. They're, they're talking, they're discussing things and after the end of this symbolic meal and the supper uh there is teaching and um Jesus is going to do that and that's part of the reason why uh John devotes so much time in his gospel to that last evening because Jesus does a significant amount of teaching and so in uh Matthew 26. And we're going to be moving back and forth from Matthew to John 13. So you might, if you, if you have a Bible, you might want to uh, stick a bulletin in one of those and then we'll be flipping back and forth. Uh, because again, the gospel writers don't write us a chronology of what's happening. They write us thematic approach. And so these things are important. So let's say to Uh, Matthew and some other things are important to John. And so I'm going to go back and forth as the Seder progresses. And so uh, in Matthew 26, verse 20 and 21, it says, now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples and they were eating. And he said, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me being deeply grieved. They each one began to say to him, Surely Lord, not I. And so there is this discussion, if you will, that they're having. And Jesus, during this conversation says, one of you is going to betray me. Now that should come as pretty shocking behavior because these 12 men have been with Jesus for approximately three and a half years. They've seen him teach. They've seen him minister. They've seen him forgive people. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him in a number of different instances. And yet one of them is going to betray. And so that should, if you will, come as a a shock. And so he announces because he's told them that I'm going to tell you all things that happened before. So that when they do happen down the road, you are going to come to believe because I told you in advance. So one of the things that he tells them, because the scriptures says that he will be betrayed. So he says, it's one of you. And then the ematic response is, Lord, is it me? Is it, is it I? Am I the one who's going to betray you? And so there is this around the table, if you will, uh, questioning, who is it that's going to betray Jesus? And so now we're going to jump to John chapter 13 starting with verse 21. And when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And the disciples been looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking. And there was reclining at the table, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now this is John's way of saying, it's me. John's never going to say, I'm Jesus's favorite. He says, the one that Jesus loved. Well, Jesus loved all of them. And, he, and even in before he said, he loved them to the end. But John apparently holds some special place in Jesus's heart. And so again, instead of saying, I'm the favorite, he goes, the one whom Jesus really loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. So Peter is Peter. Peter's got to know what's going on. Peter's saying, it's not good enough for me to say, is it me? Is it you? I want to know. And so because John has this special relationship and apparently John at the table. And again, we have the picture of the last supper painted on that painting, which is a mural of them sitting there. They're reclining at the table, and, and the, the true kind of idea is, is that John is kind of like leaning on Jesus's chest as a part of it. So he's close to him. So as Peter's going, hey, John, you're close to Jesus. Ask him who it is. So I'm trying to get, this is real. This is real life. All right. If, if somebody said something bad is going to happen, you would want to know who it is and what it was. Peter's no different. And so he goes, okay, if, if John's your favorite, then John, you ask him because you're closest to him. And then verse 26 is, and he, as he was leaning on his bosom, thus Jesus bosom, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip like the morsel, dip the morsel and give it to him. And so Jesus gives us a clue and says, okay, the King James says sop. And that's, that's a word that we really don't use today. So I had to kind of look it up. Using, again, Thanksgiving meal as an item. What I want you to kind of, and if you don't like gravy, then you probably don't do it. But one of the, if you like gravy and you have an extra piece of bread, usually what you do is you dip the bread in the gravy, which makes the bread moist. That's sop. You've made it more liquid. So so Jesus apparently has taken, and so they couldn't have used a roll because it's unleavened bread. So maybe he took the matzah. Put it in some fluid like some, and said, "Whoever it is I give this morsel to this sop to is the one who will betray me." And so going back again to Matthew chapter 26, we see this. And we're going to look at uh, verse 24. The Son of Man is to go, just as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for him that that man, if he had not been born. And Judas, who is betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Judas is a betrayer. So much so that we will use the term you're a Judas if somebody betrays somebody. Not only is he a betrayer, he's stupid. Because here's the Lord of Lord. Here's the King of Kings. Here's the one who has predicted all of these various things that have come true. The one who got 30 pieces of silver. The one Jesus has said somebody is going to betray me. And there are two people who know who is going to betray Jesus, Jesus and Judas. And he goes, surely it's not I rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. So now I want you to go back to John chapter 13, and we're going to, Take a look what goes on afterwards. And so on John chapter 13, verse 28, it says this. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him, Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. So Jesus has told Peter and John, this is Judas who has betrayed me. And Jesus tells Judas, what you do, go do quickly. Get it over with. Don't delay. And that we see, That Satan hadn't always resided in Judas. He entered into Judas at an opportune time. Because he was upset that he couldn't use the money that was given in fragrance to anoint Jesus. And made a bargain. And now we see Satan entering into him to accomplish the task. Now, one of those who were climbing at the table knew for what purpose he had said this. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things that we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. And so now there are no longer the 12 disciples. Judas has left to go out and complete his bargain to betray Jesus. So he's left. So the rest of the supper. And and so now if John and Peter are aware, there are now three people who are aware that Judas is the betrayer, Jesus, Peter, and John, the rest of the disciples kind of don't have a clue. They're not sure why Judas left. They're not sure why Jesus fed him that morsel. They make an assumption. Judas is the treasurer of the group. Maybe we need some other stuff. Maybe we need some additional matzah. Maybe we need some more wine. Maybe it's whatever. And, or maybe he's going to go out and make a gift to the poor. They're making assumptions because they're not sure what's going to go on. So Judas leaves. One more time, we're going to go back to Matthew 26. We won't be going back to John for a while now, so you can forget about John. It's kind of a dear John letter, if you will. Somebody got my joke. Verse 26. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. I want to stop there. One of the sad things in in church practice is that we will argue about aspects of what we'll either call the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist or whatever name you want to call this. but it seems to have been divorced from its context. When we come and celebrate communion, it is in the context of the Passover. It is in the context that God had done something extraordinary. He freed his people from the grip of bondage of slavery and delivered them to the promised land that God, was present with them through their journeys. The original plan was it was going to take a few months. It ended up taking 40 years. But even though God was angry with them in the desert, in the wilderness, he never left them nor forsake them. He was faithful to his promises, not only to them, but to Abraham who he said, your descendants will come to this land and possess it. So God was powerful and he delivered his people. And in this remembrance, Jesus is going to now set something even more important in this context, that God is going to do something even more tremendously powerful. Not only is he going to free a nation, he's going to free all nations from the bondage and slavery of not physical sin, not physical slavery, but spiritual slavery that he, in this context, that as we celebrate what God has done to free his people, we will now celebrate what God has done to free all people. And so Jesus has done something significant. We talk about the washing of feet and we talk about him becoming a servant. And now we're going to talk about what is really happening. And so he says, he's going to take this bread now if you've been in a passover seder what happens is we have the ceremonial meal which is we take a a unleavened bread we take it we put some uh lamb on it we put some horseradish for the bitter herbs we make a little what they call a gamiel sandwich and we eat it and those who are brave put a lot of rash on it. And for those who not so much put a tiny bit on it and we eat it. Some like the lamb, some don't like the lamb, but, but that's not the meal. That's the ceremony. And then there is a meal. And so in this Haggadah, in this supper that they're experiencing, they've had the ceremonial meal. They've had the real meal. Now it may be lamb and it may have been whatever, but it was additional food And they were drinking, and in the ceremony, and as part of the haggadah, they have two glasses of wine before the meal, and they have two glasses of wine after. And so that's why you, if you've been to one, you start to appreciate how tired the disciples are, because it's a long evening, you've had to prepare for it, you've had this thing, and then you've had four glasses of wine, and you're kind of tired. And so In the present Haggadah, there is this third matzah that's in the middle that is taken out wrapped in a linen cloth and hid. Now in Jewish custom, what they do is they hide it and the kids go try to find it and whoever finds it gets a gift. I suspect Jesus didn't hide this bread. He didn't give the disciple who found it a gift. It's It's kind of keep the kids interested in a long evening, but there is this one that is set aside. Jesus takes this one and he does something unique. And he says, and he took some bread and after a blessing. So after he prayed, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat. This is my body. So now he's changed the whole meaning of Passover. It's now no longer looking back at how God has delivered Israel from Egypt. He's saying in this meal, this bread represents the bread of him. This bread represents my body. It is broken for you. You see, it's personal. All too often. We love to argue doctrine and situations and who's right and who's wrong, but rarely do we teach our children about it being personal. And Jesus has taken this personal Passover Seder and made it even more personal because he says, not only did God deliver you from Egypt, he's delivering you from sin. And how did he do that? Because of my broken body, which was done for you. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. He tells them and the other gospels like Luke make it very plain that this cup is the cup after supper. And he's saying, we're changing the meaning of this cup. It is a cup that represents a new covenant, a new contract. And in that contract is like very similar to Passover. In Passover, they took the blood of the lamb and placed it on the doorpost and on the lintel and on the side. And and the death angel, when he saw the blood passed over. And Jesus says, this is the blood of new covenant. This is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, and when He sees that blood upon you for the forgiveness of sins, he will pass over our sins. And it doesn't matter what they are. He has taken this beautiful meal to recall what God has done and set it anew. To recall what God is doing. But Jesus says, I'm not going to drink of this anymore. If this is for you. But there will come a day that I will drink it. When we all are in the kingdom of God. There is a. Cup. And a Jewish Seder. It's called the Elijah cup because they're looking for Elijah to come because Elijah needs to come before the Messiah. And so they have a cup and they set it at a separate table and they call it the Elijah cup. You know what? I've never seen a Jesus cup because Jesus says, I'm not going to drink of this until the kingdom. So maybe if we ever celebrate a Passover again, Maybe not only should we do an Elijah cup, maybe we should do a Jesus cup saying, I'm looking forward to the day when we're drinking this with you, Jesus. Now, in case you think I'm making too much of this, and I don't believe I can make too much of this. It is that important. And is that sad that we as believers by and large, not just our congregation, but Christians and Christians, have no clue that we take matzah, unleavened bread, and, and grape juice or wine, and we do these things and we recall these things and we're worried about being worthy or not worthy. But we forgot the teaching of how personal it is. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting with verse 23, it says this, Now this is Paul writing for I receive from the Lord, that which I also deliver to you. Jesus taught Paul. This Paul wasn't one of the 12. As a matter of fact, he was an enemy of the church. How important must it be for Jesus personally to teach Paul? about what took place at what we call the last supper that he spends time. And that Paul says, I didn't get this from Peter. I didn't get this from John. I didn't get this from Thomas. I didn't get it from any of those guys. I got it directly from Jesus for I received from the Lord, that which I also deliver you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, obviously important, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We don't just break the bread and say, oh, isn't it interesting? I don't know why we'd eat matzah this time of day, but okay, we do. We do this in his remembrance. We do this in his honor. We do this because we know who he is and what he's done. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper. There is a particular designation of this cup. Saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus didn't put a timetable. There are a lot of churches that have communion on the first Sunday of every month. Other churches do it every week. Some churches Never do it. And our church does it when I feel like it. That's the truth. And I'll tell you why I do it when I feel like it. Because I don't want it to be rote. It's that important. I want you to appreciate this. Because I want you to appreciate what Jesus has done for you and for me. And that we do this, not because it's the first Sunday of the month, but we do it. In his honor and in his remembrance of what he's done. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You see, we do more than just eat some unleavened bread and drink some grape juice or wine. It is a declaration of Jesus' death. It is a testimony that he died for me, and he died for you, and he died for us, and we are declaring that death. And when we take those elements, there is a sense of depression that it was necessary. For the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to die for my sins and my shame. And that's bad enough. But I sinned not far more after I became a believer than before. And he still, his blood is still effective for those sins. And the necessity of that happening can be and is depressing. But there is celebration because we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which means it is a statement of faith. Yes, Jesus died for me. But just like he taught before the Seder and during the Seder and after the Seder, I'm coming back, guys. I'm coming back. I'm coming not only as the humble servant, but I am coming back truly acknowledged in the glory of the son of God. And we declare that death until he comes. So yes, there's sadness, but there ought to be rejoicing. He's coming. Maybe not soon enough, but he's coming. So Jesus in this little meal that ended up started out with 13 people. Now 12 has changed dramatically the meaning of the Seder has changed it from what God had done to deliver his people to what God is doing to deliver his people. And that as they represented and as they celebrated the Passover personally, it was always what God had done for them. It was not what God did for our ancestors. Even in the questions, the children would ask, why is this night different than all the rest? It was all because God did this for us. God did this for us. And when we celebrate the communion or Lord's Supper or Eucharist or whatever you want to call it, it is not a, well, this is interesting. It is what God has done for us. It's personal and he has changed it. And we need to celebrate it in such a way as to understand that it's in the context of the great things that God has done, the great thing that God is doing, and that it is for us. During the Seder, it represented that God delivered his people, Israel. In this, it is celebrating that God has opened the door to all of us, that he has made a way for all of us through his broken body and through his blood, he has made a way for all of us that we become not just children of Abraham because we have shared DNA. We are truly children of Abraham because we have faith because he gave us that faith through grace. And so this should be an excel a celebration of excitement that God provided a way for me to sit down at his table, to lie down at his table. And maybe I won't be as lucky, not maybe, I won't be as lucky as John to lean on his breast. But he made a way for me to be at the table. He made a way for you to be at the table. So as we're going to sing in a little bit, not only is he a way maker, he does those things even when we think nothing's happening. Even when we feel nothing's happening. I'm pretty sure these guys thought, well, this is a pretty cool Seder. Jesus did some kind of unusual things. He washed our feet, started breaking bread and drinking a cup and saying that it's about him. And that's unusual. they saw the true significance of when he hung on a cross. And they saw the victory when he rose from the dead. Sometimes during our ministry in our lives, we kind of wonder what God's doing. Kind of seems to be absent. The greatest victory is going to happen in a few hours from this night. Sometimes God is allowing that difficulty in our lives to prepare us when we don't understand it for the greatest victories. Because He is and always will be a way maker. And all God's people said,